0: From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm your host. This week, we are bringing you an important conversation about the state of abortion care in Texas. In September, Texas passed SB 8, a bill that banned abortions at six weeks of pregnancy and deputized private citizens to enforce the ban. Since then, it's been an all-hands-on-deck operation to provide care to those in Texas still eligible in-state, while also helping shuffle others to states with broader access. We can look to Texas to see some of what a post-war world could look like for many other states across the country. To that end, we're enlisting Cecile Richards, former president of Planned Parenthood and native Texan, to speak to folks on the ground in Texas, those mobilizing and creating systems that we can all learn from as we seek to navigate abortion access in this new legal climate. Joining Cecile, we have Anna Rupani, the executive director of Fund Texas Choice, Dr. Bhavik Kumar, an abortion provider in the state, and Rev. Dr. Daniel Cantor, Senior Minister of First Unitarian Church, Dallas. Okay, now here's Cecile Richards.
1: Thank you, everybody, for joining this episode of At Liberty. And as a fellow Texan, it's been so important to me to try to lift up the real lived experiences of folks in the state right now. Since SB 8, things have so dramatically changed— It's really important for folks around the country to get to hear from you directly about your own experiences and how we can support both you and other people in states that are both are similarly affected and will be. It wasn't that long ago that we actually won a very important Supreme Court case, Whole Women's Health, in 2016. And at the time, of course, we were battling unfair and unconstitutional restrictions on abortion providers and that were really had, had decimated access in the state, we won that 5-3 decision in a very different um, construct of the Supreme Court. And so it is, I mean, just to put it in perspective, of course, it's extraordinary that less than a decade later we would be facing such a completely reconfigured Supreme Court and a court that today appears to be prepared to overturn a 50-year, nearly 50-year constitutional right to safe and legal abortions. So we're going to start with just introducing our incredible guests. Anna, I was going to start with you. I know that you have a background in social work and you came to this work in reproductive justice Um, We could talk a little bit about your role now and also help some of our folks understand exactly what an abortion fund is and how it's operating there in Texas.
2: Yeah, thank you. Uh, My name is Ana Rupani. I use she, her pronouns. I am the executive director of Fund Texas Choice. It is a nonprofit that provides Texans travel and logistical support um, who are seeking abortions. And practical support and abortion funds are basically organizations um, that are local to most states that support individuals either by funding the procedure themselves or funding the in-between costs. So, folks that are seeking an abortion can get to the care they deserve and need. Um, and Fun Texas Choice falls on the side of helping folks with the logistical part of it, so the in-between costs. We have been in Texas since uh, 2013, um, and we were created because of the exact case that you talked about, Cecile, about 75% of the clinics shut down within a year of House Bill 2 being passed. Um, we knew that Texans would need to either far, like travel really far in Texas, Or travel out of Texas to get care. Um, And that would increase the likelihood of their costs. Because if they can't afford an abortion, they likely can't afford to travel to their abortion appointment. And so that's kind of where we came into place. And then since then, um, we've increased um, in staff size to operate. um, And we've seen SBA kind of take what House Bill 2 was and amplify it times 100. Um, So once House Bill Two was overturned, um, we often saw folks traveling, you know, around eight hundred miles round trip because Texas is a. Massive state that I think people forget about. Um, and now our clients are traveling almost 1,400 miles round trip to get to their abortion appointments. Before we were helping folks with, say, gas money. Um, and now most folks are having to fly. That's kind of how abortion funds and practical support funds have been operating here in Texas for the last 10 months. Um, but we offer wraparound care in every way possible to make sure that someone can get to their abortion appointment and come back home safely.
1: We'll dig more deeply into this, but thank you obviously for your work and it's life-saving work. And of course, as we all know, if in fact many of the states that patients have been traveling to also now outlaw abortions, these travel times, and of course the wait time is gonna get, get even worse. Dr. Kumar, it's such an honor to have you on this uh, show, and thank you for your extraordinary work. I know you work in Houston um, with Planned Parenthood there, and so I'd love for you to introduce yourself to our guests, um, tell us a little bit about your path and what it's like today to be an abortion provider
3: in Texas. Yeah, hello. Thanks for having me. My name is Dr. Bhavik Kumar, and I've been an abortion provider in Texas for a little over seven years now. Um, I use he, him pronouns. Um, And I'd say I grew up in Texas. This is home for me. And I think early on when I was in medical school uh, in Lubbock, I recognized pretty early on that the state is pretty galvanized against um, sex education, sexual rights, access to family planning care. I would see other folks in New York and California that were in medical school and their environments were very different. And I thought the people of Texas deserve what you have. They have, they deserve access to contraception and sex education and abortion. It should be covered by insurance. All the basic things that I thought every human deserves, right? Um, but unfortunately, over the last seven years when I've been in Texas, we've seen legislative session after legislative session, law after law, regulation after regulation, attacking people's rights to being able to access this care. And we know that access to this care has profound effects on a person's health, Uh, physical, social, mental well-being, their family, oftentimes the kids that they already have at home, their financial status, their ability to recognize and realize their autonomy and dreams and everything else that is so meaningful to people to be able to access abortion care, but family planning care generally. So unfortunately now in Texas, and I think what we're seeing throughout the country is not just an attack on this, but an outright assault on people's autonomy. And this is already having devastating effects in Texas. It's been in effect now for nine months. And so many people that have been forced to carry their pregnancies to term and now giving birth to children that they know they couldn't take care of. And they're in a worse position than they started off in. And it's really unfortunate to see that, especially as a physician who set out to take care of people and to do good by them. And when somebody's sitting in front of you, a real human being asking for care that you can provide them, it feels very unethical, very unjust. And even more than nine months into doing this, it still feels just as awful to tell somebody, even though I have the skills and the training to provide this care for you right here, you're going to have to go across state lines and get this care. And that's not easy for a lot of people. It's just really, really hard on all of us doing this work, as well as the folks trying to access this care.
1: No, and I mean, you're just... Resilience and the other docs I've talked to in the state of Texas. I just the toll on everyone with no real end in sight. We'll get a little bit more into like your, like how you're managing. But our last person on the panel is a longtime friend, Reverend Cantor, Um, actually from my home church that I grew up in, First Unitarian Church of Dallas. So Reverend Cantor, it's um, really good to see you again. I know that you and um, the folks at the church there have been su- providing counseling and support to pregnant folks in the area, um, and under SB eight, you've been helping people travel as well. So I'd love you just to introduce yourself and say a little bit about you know about how it's going there.
4: Sure, I'm so glad to be on this uh, with you all. We're also the home. Home base for the Roe v. Wade case. The women of this church started the, the discussion with Planned Parenthood in North Texas at the time, and and wrote the amicus brief and found Sarah Weddington. And so, whenever I talk, I I say that you know I'm standing on those shoulders. And we also had clergy driving patients to the Gulf of Mexico to get on ships and go out to international waters before Roe. And we've been so we've been doing this for a long time. As you said, I'm the senior minister of First Unitarian Church of Dallas. I have been the the chair of the the PPFA Clergy Advocacy Board when you were CEO, uh, and I've been involved with Planned Parenthood. More importantly and apropos to this conversation, I founded a a multi-faith chaplaincy within the clinic of Southwestern Women's Surgical here in Dallas about seven years ago. Um, trying to do two things. One, to, to say to the patients and their families that all people of faith were not, uh, against them and not anti abortion. And two, just to provide spiritual care, uh, to patients and their families and in turn, the doctors and the, the staff of. So we, um, we started doing that long before SB8. When SB8 came around, I went up to the clinic and we, we had gone from about a hundred patients a day to about 30 patients a day, 15 of whom didn't really qualify under six weeks. And I said to the staff, why don't we start busing people to New Mexico to the sister clinic in Albuquerque? And, um, the next thing I know, we're, we're raising money and uh, we start this program where we ended up flying groups of, patients to Albuquerque. And my church is the church where the journey starts. And a bunch of volunteers here, women like the women who started the Roe v. Wade case, are baking bread, baking breads and making fruit salads and welcoming people and telling them that God loves them and that everything's going to be okay. And the trip really, and we can get into this at some point, but it does two things. It reminds people that uh, people of faith are not all against abortion. And secondly, the the experience that the travelers have, we call them travelers, is a group experience. And they really heal each other and help each other. And uh, they, they arrive here at our doors very nervous about the whole thing. And they, they arrive back uh, 16 hours later, like a volleyball team that just won the tournament. And, uh, you know, really loving on each other and, and supporting each other and all along in a comp- being accompanied by one of my multi-faith chaplains on my team who spends the 16, 18 hours with them, um, listening to their stories. What we say is that we hear them into speech if they want to uh, tell us stories or pray with them or have theological questions, the kinds of things we had conversations with them inside the clinic as well. So. That's a, a short, short introduction about why, why I'm on this <laughs> podcast with you all.
1: Well, I I love that you rooted this in the history of the church. And actually, something you said, Anna, I'd love to ask you about, and that is what I hear kind of most overwhelmingly is the amount of fear that patients have right now, fearful that who they can trust, even asking clinicians sometimes, are you going to, you know, turn me in? Who can I talk to? Uh, fear about what's not only what's legal, but what's safe for them. And I'm just curious, Ana, obviously you're dealing with a lot of people who have a lot of anxiety and some of the things that Reverend Cantor is talking about just in terms of how we help people feel supported in this moment. I'm just curious out of what your days are like um, so that we can kind of give people around the country some some sense of what's going on.
2: Our, I mean, our days vary depending on like what's happening in the United States, to be very frank, Um, from a leaked draft opinion to banned bans in other states. Our days vary from, and, and so one day it could be no one has any questions about any real thing except, hey, what time is my flight? What hotel am I staying in? To, hey, to hey, I don't think I can get to my abortion appointment because they banned they banned abortion everywhere. Um, to abortion's not legal, so I'm not allowed to go um, anywhere. So what am I supposed to do now, right? Um, and so we've heard kind of like fear and anxiety and and folks crying on our calls, just very upset that they can't get anywhere and us reassuring them that we will get them to their abortion appointments um, and the, where they're going, it's not banned. To then diverting clients from, say, Oklahoma, um, where they had their appointments to other states and other clinics, um, especially New Mexico and Colorado, um, and getting them there. And so that anxiety and fear is very, very real. Literally, the day of um, sb being enacted, um, we went from what would be 40 or 50 calls a month to 40 calls a day. And so people very much anxious about Will they have access? How will they have access? Who's going to support them? And then folks calling us and saying, so-and-so gave me your information, but I shouldn't have even told you that because they could get sued and they didn't even want to tell me your information or folks telling us, I I had to search far and wide to figure out who I could call and who I could talk to because no one was willing to support me in finding out information because they could be aiding and abetting. And so we do offer that emotional support um, to clients when they're calling, but we also get them in touch with resources after the fact and during um, our trip planning process with them. But it does, it does take a lot more time now just because of the anxiety there and the need to Um, help folks understand that what they're doing is not illegal, even if it's harder to access.
4: And I would add to this, I've heard patients who have been to fake clinics and been sort of terrorized by the anti-abortion deceptions in those clinics about what's going to happen to them if they have abortions. The the newest fear that we're having with the travel program is that they think we're going to Uh, traffic them. And this is amazing because they're coming through a legitimate clinic, they're being filtered through, they're being counseled, and then they're coming to a church which carries its own trauma given all of the ideologies. This is why we're in this mess is because the ideological positions of a thin slice of Christians uh, have, have enforced this on us. So one of the emotional supports of our program is that we tell them God loves them and we love them and they're safe and they're going to be okay and they're in good hands. And, and, uh, and we try to, try to build trust with them from that first moment. But I agree with Anna, the, the, the levels of, of trauma are significant
2: having done anti-trafficking work as an attorney for a long time, what what Reverend Cantor is talking about is actually quite true because some of our clients have even said like, how how do I know that the person you're sending me with is going to even the ride share, not take like to get me to the appointment, not gonna um, hurt me, right? And so we hear that, that fear all the time and the fake clinics, like the crisis pregnancy centers, that is something that that's one of the reasons we do a lot of wraparound and lengthy care. Is we research the place that the client is talking about, ask them for numbers, so we can divert them if it is a CPC. Um, because we've actually done that at least ten different times. We've diverted clients to a proper clinic because they have they think they're going to an abortion clinic when they're not. So it it ha- it it's it's happening all the time.
1: One thing I want to just add in here is. But for folks who are listening and may not be aware of just how uh, inhumane the the law is in Texas, the whole aiding and abetting part of the law, which is which is a, a, a bit murky, right? Because we don't really know what it means, but it, it essentially anyone could be turned in um, by anyone for aiding and abetting uh, anyone who is getting an abortion, and so obviously the the potential for fear and for people not trusting folks is is. Um, it is greatly expanded even from other um, bad laws we've had before. Dr, I know you are you are a Texan you're and I assume you're probably committed to staying in Texas, but it seems like now in many ways the doctors I'm talking to are have almost become much more um, patient navigators, support systems for patients. And so how do you think about this? and anything else you want to tell us um, about what the day-to-day experience is? Uh, with dealing with patients that you can't care for?
3: I think, again, growing up in Texas, this is not new for me. I think things have gotten certainly worse, probably the worse they've been. Um, and it is definitely difficult. When I was in Lubbock at that time, we had one clinic um, and a doctor that flew in from Dallas, and that was pretty much it for West Texas. And I think that clinic shut down pretty early on. Um, so that was sort of my sense of what abortion care was like in Texas. It was very difficult to get... Um, access to a mentor, to see what the inside of a clinic was like as a medical student. And I really think that speaks to the stigma around abortion care, not just uh, in accessing the care, but also in the way that the medical world, physicians and clinicians are taught about abortion if they're taught about it at all. I think for me personally, seeing people who are very early in pregnancy and don't qualify for an abortion in Texas, it is very difficult to help them understand why. Sometimes they're asking me for help. Oftentimes they're begging. They're telling me their personal situation. Perhaps they were on birth control. Perhaps they've had irregular periods. They're having irregular bleeding. They have an abusive partner. They haven't been able to get time off of work. They made the appointment, but it was two weeks ago. They weren't able to find a clinic. The list goes on and on and on. And each person has their own story. And I think as a human being and as a good physician, you empathize with them. You understand that getting access to care in a state that has a rate of uninsured people that's as high as 17%, um, not getting good care when you're pregnant and having you know the highest rates of maternal mortality in the state. And somebody tells you that I almost died in my last pregnancy and I can't do this again. You can totally empathize with what that means as a physician um, and what that could mean for them to continue their pregnancy. And again, the list goes on and on. Same thing with traveling. Traveling is great for the people that can make it, but people have cried and told us that they feel unsafe going home because their partners are abusive, uh, folks that are undocumented and can't travel more than 70 miles from uh, their homes. I think one of the most fulfilling things for me in doing this work before SB8 was to see somebody that is bringing in all of that stigma, bringing in all of that concern, anxiety, uncertainty about what they're going to experience and being able to get them through that and hearing them say, this wasn't as bad as I thought. You guys were really nice. Thank you for valuing me, upholding my values, what I think and, and know is best for me and making me feel whole again. And we've lost that. Instead, we're sort of part of their crisis. Now you have to go somewhere else. Um, you're going to have to travel and we'll help you figure some of these things out, but there's no solution to the problem, um, that they're facing. And what I think about on the larger scale of all of these things is just that we're inflicting harm on people. We're causing more trauma and medically, this is going to be disastrous for many people and also increase the mortality rates for people, especially folks of color. We know what happens when abortion's banned. We know from other countries where it's difficult to access that care. It's like watching a very, very slow car wreck where you know exactly what's going to happen, but you're powerless to stop it. This is a very bad moment. I do think it's going to get worse, but I also believe in the fact that people always need access to care. We have to stand in that truth and continue doing what we can and and hoping for a better day.
4: And Dr. Kumar, we had a patient who showed up at the clinic at five and a half weeks, had a 24-hour waiting period, and then it was a week-long weekend and passed the six weeks, basically, right? I mean, it wasn't exactly like that, but that's... So what I understand about this, and you you can tell us better, is that, that most women have one week to figure this out and take action in the six-week band.
3: Yeah. So this SB8 is specifically about cardiac motion. The earliest we've seen, and and again, cardiac motion is when you do an ultrasound and you see some flickering on the screen, which is the cells that eventually will form a heart, but has electrical activity. So a person that has regular menstrual periods, is not using any contraception, probably didn't use Plan B and had any kind of irregular bleeding, has about 10 days to 14 days to know that they're pregnant um, have made the decision to, uh, have an abortion if they haven't already consulted whoever they, they may have or uh, wanted to consult. If anybody found a clinic that's a real clinic that provide that care, uh, make that appointment, arrive at that appointment, wait at least their 24 hours, if not longer, depending on physician availability, because it has to be the same physician that does the ultrasound, that does the abortion, make it to that second appointment. Know that they don't, they are not able to use any of their insurance or Medicaid to pay for their care if they need it. Um, have contacted an abortion fund if they need support for their abortion, paying for it, getting to the clinic, taking the time off of work, finding childcare to get to the uh, appointment and make it there. It's very, very difficult to do. And some people do make it, but of course, those are the folks that have the means, have the knowledge, have the ability, have the resources to do all of that. And for a lot of people, that's just not possible. So you're exactly right. Yeah. And, 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 We've seen, I'd say roughly just off the top of my head, about 10% of folks on the first day of their ultrasound that qualify for an abortion under SB8, when they come back a day or two later at the most, unfortunately have developed cardiac motion. And it is just as difficult to tell them, you were fine on that day under this law. You're still fine in my eyes, but because of this law, we're unable to move forward with that care. There's no guidelines with any of these regulations as far as what medical parameters somebody needs to reach, what blood pressure, what heart rate, how much of a fever, because these things aren't rooted in medicine and science. So it's not medical professionals' fault um, because they're navigating something that was not designed to make sense. And, And unfortunately, we're dealing with real people with real lives that... We know how to take care of them. We know how to counsel them, um, and of course, the folks that I'm hearing from, I know that they're good people and, and, and can and get this information. It's just that they're feeling stuck and unsure because these laws are being passed, not by uh, physicians or medical professionals, but by random folks with other priorities, and it's not keeping these people's lives at, at, as a priority, which is the problem.
1: No, I think that's a that's you've captured it um, perfectly. I think one of the most important things we could do um, before we end this today is make sure that we are uh, giving people our best thoughts about what they can do. Because the worst thing is going to be is these laws begin to now roll into effect around the country. And uh, I think I think you all having are your leaders in the state, but you're obviously now national leaders in this arena. What do you see coming up? What can people be doing um, to prepare? And how can they support people that need abortion services?
2: So one thing that I always think of when people ask, like, how can I help or what can I do, um, is using the word abortion. I know that people, it, it's a—it's to destigmatize it, right? I I just, I remember when I was a child, language access was a thing. I was raised in Texas myself, born and raised in Texas. And I think about, um, I and I went to school in Boston and I remember saying something like, oh, I'm not sure I'd have an abortion for myself, but you could have an abortion, but I'm pro-life for myself, which like doesn't really make sense, right? When you think about it and that had to do with language access in Texas, right? Everyone around me was talking about how they were pro-life and I was just really constantly exposed to that. And I didn't think about what it actually meant until I had access to language. Um, and I think Access to language really determines how we feel about particular topics. Supporting your local abortion fund is like very, very important. And listening to the people on the ground that are doing the work, um, because they're the ones who are helping in, say in Texas, getting Texans to the care they need, right? Um, and the care they deserve. And they're the ones who know what to do. The other part of what can people do, you know, um, is make sure they're paying attention to their local politicians and paying attention to local politics in their own home states, um, because that is where these laws come in, right? It, you know, if Dobbs goes the way we think it's supposed to go, you know, states can protect abortion and states have protected abortion um, in their constitution. Colorado just namely, did it themselves. And so, you know, look at what your local um, politicians are doing, what your state legislatures are doing and be involved in that process because that can make a huge difference in what comes tomorrow for the states that are potentially thinking of even thinking about bans or what they want to do to either... um, Increase or limit access to abortions? Okay, terrific. Reverend Cantor.
4: Yeah, sure. I mean, I've been consulting with clergy all over the country about how to replicate our program, um, providing spiritual support and, and nourishment, uh, working with clinics and in other kinds of coalitions. Um, I think you know, I've been, you know, I, I've been talking to clergy about finding each other. It's creating a counter narrative about. People of faith, uh, you know what we know is that all this, this, all these problems we're in have been shaped by a small percentage of ideological Christians, and our country is much more rich and diverse in, in faith, and has a lot of different ideas about abortion, and we shouldn't be afraid to talk about it. I'm part of a team talking about how clergy themselves can be. Uh, working within the law and be out loud and proud about supporting reproductive dignity. Um, This past Sunday, I told my own abortion story with a a woman who's a professional storyteller. She told her story about being 20 plus weeks pregnant and um, having to have an abortion. And I told my story about being a 23 year old and getting a woman pregnant. And, and I said at the end, I'm your minister. And I got a woman pregnant and and she had an abortion. And that's life. You know, we, we, you know, I'm not there in this congregation if something else had happened there. Um, I, I always remind people, these issues are complex. There's so many different things going on in people's lives to not just stand in judgment in some ideology, from some ideological position that condemns this. And of course, we're having two different kinds of conversations when we when we encounter anti-abortion folks. But the people in the middle need to create coalitions with people willing to have these discussions, learn, make statements, and then figure out ways to activate uh, help, uh, respite centers, uh, networks of of travel networks like we're doing here in Texas with Albuquerque, and be, be of service in communities that need it. Uh, and we figured out a way. There's going to be lots of grassroots ways to do this all over the country. We have lost the battles uh, on on Roe and, and, and these access issues. Now we have to work within the law and, and do what we can. Okay, good doctor.
3: What can you tell us? Well, what the real consequences will be once Roe is overturned, we don't know for sure, but things are going to get much worse. But I think Um, For folks that are listening, everyone has to get engaged. Doing nothing is not an option. There's very simple things that folks are learning, like abortion is really common. One in four women will have an abortion in their lifetime. Sixty-something percent of folks that have an abortion are already parents. Seventy-five percent of folks that have an abortion are low-income or poor. And a lot of these facts, oftentimes folks are like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Um, And the last thing I'll just say uh, along those lines is that we often talk about abortion and isolation of everything else in a person's life, including their sex lives, their right to pleasure, their right to explore their sexuality, um, their, what happens when a person doesn't have access to abortion, the impact on their lives, their families, their social well-being, their financial well-being. And it impacts so much of not just their lives, but lives for generations to come, including the kids that they already have. And again, that's another thing that folks hear and say, oh, my God, I never thought about it in this way because they've been conditioned to think about abortion in these very highly stigmatized false ways and narratives. And so I think things will get worse, but I think, and I'm very hopeful that folks will be more engaged and understand abortion in a different way. And hopefully we never have to come back to this moment that we're in right now, but we need everybody to wake up and at least do something. That
1: is one of the things that has been missing in a lot of this conversation is the aspirational side of what it meant, what it has meant for 50 years in this country, even with acknowledging how uneven the access to legal abortion is. Because we know as Texans, it's not that it's been easy for these last several years. It hasn't been. And it's been disproportionately hard for people with low incomes and young people and women of color, people of color, folks in rural areas. It's not it has not been fair. Changes and the what was what had been opportunities for people because they could actually make decisions about when and whether to have a child is it's probably the most important decision many of us will ever get to make in our in our lifetime. So I really want to thank each of you. I think that this podcast will not only inform a lot of people but frankly inspire people that if you can do this in Texas. That everyone in this country can do more where they are, uh, so um, I guess just on my own per- on a personal note, I just incredibly grateful um, for for the work that you do um, for folks folks in our in our home state.
4: Thank you. Thank you Thank you yeah thanks for having us Thank you
0: Thank you so much Thanks so much to Cecile Richards. Anna Rupani, Dr. Babak Kumar, and Reverend Dr. Daniel Cantor for joining us, and thanks to you all for listening. We have a long fight ahead of us, but the ACLU was made for moments like this. To donate to support our fight against the attack on reproductive autonomy and all the attacks that follow, please visit ACLU.org/keepfighting. That's ACLU.org/keepfighting. Thanks so much for stepping up and working together with us. Until next week, stay strong.